And we're live here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. That would make me terrible, Troy. I'm Treacherous, Tristan. And joining us, he's the co-writer and co-producer of Spookies, an actor and associate producer of Street Trash, Farrell Frank Farrell. Hi. Hey, it's your pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for doing it. It's very exciting. I'm a big fan of uh, both Spookies and Street Trash. That's always good to hear. And to tell the truth, I all I can say at this point, as you guys probably know, Spookies came out uh, on Blu-ray about uh, a little less than uh, yeah, a little less than two years ago, and that sort of uh, you know made it uh, a a commodity in terms of uh, people who are into 80s horror again. So many people had either never seen it, weren't familiar with it. Uh, so for me, it's been like a whole, uh, you know, it's been a, a, a rejuvenation of me and my career to some degree. That's cool. And it's, it's you don't see that in like most genres of film, like um, movies will come and go, but like a lot of horror movies will stay around. And like... Our- or new- I, look, I, I always felt this, I mean, because, you know, for years, just being a fan from a young age, uh, they were the first movies that I seriously started to have an interest in as a genre, which I think is normal. Kids kids love monsters. I think it's a very natural thing to identify with that type of thing. But uh, I don't know. I just see there's like the community. I don't see any other film fan. I know other film fans because I'm fans of many types of movies, but I don't see any kind of... Uh, interaction and a sort of a, an open heartedness that I experience in the horror community. I mean, uh, you know, fa- fans who, and I try to be as open to uh, to people who are fans of my movies as possible. I really can't uh, contain myself. Sometimes I have a lot of gratitude and uh, you know, it means, it, it, it means quite a bit when they go out of their way to express themselves or to, to say something to me. And it, uh, I, I do all I can to treat them right. I like to hear that. That's uh, that's good to hear. And is that what led you to uh, pursue like uh, movies? Was your love of of, of horror movies weird? Movies? Well, like a lot of you know, I mean, I, I uh, saw. I mean, the first horror movies I remember seeing for a while, I thought it was like the, the Universal horrors. I, I was remembering that those were the first ones, uh, which for a lot of people that was the case. But it really was the the old American International movies that I think I saw first, uh, meaning that they would like run them at uh, 4.30 in the afternoon on the local, say, ABC affiliate. And, uh, you know, so they'd, they'd run like a, a week of AIP monster movies or or whatever. So I, uh, you know, I was a Teenage Frankenstein and Roger Corman movies and stuff like that. So I think that's what got me sort of intrigued. And I actually, I realized that when I thought about it again, I never saw like the, the Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman movies until... Uh, well, a number of years later, because they had been a big hit on television in the 50s into the mid-60s, and they withdrew them for a while. And I think I started to see them sometime in the 70s. Yeah, I grew up uh, watching uh, those. And they would usually show the uh, the Universal movies like later at night and I'd record them on VHS. But right. uh, Troy and Troy's my older brother, and uh, we would watch... Our, our, the local here would be Creature Double Feature on WLVI Channel 56. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was tremendous because then they'd always they'd usually do like um, either two universals or two hammer films or two Godzilla movies, something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's. I find it really amazing. I mean, we talked about uh, you know the sort of uh, sense of community in, the, in within the horror uh, fans. Uh, there's uh, there's so much affection for horror hosts, you know, and especially the ones people grew up with. That uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up uh, in New York City with people like uh, Zachary, and. Uh, that uh, and Zachary was Zachary was quite a character. He was one of the you know the the early pioneers at that sort of thing. And uh, you know I I uh, am amazed at how many cities have their signature horror host. Yeah, because I, I was watching the um, the Tom Savini documentary and he had his own, which I the um, Chili Chili Cardilli, I think. Oh yeah, I, he's, I, he's, I uh, he's, uh, he, well, he's in uh, I think Night of the Living Dead. I think he's the sheriff, if I remember. And his daughter was in uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, and it's, it was really wild because, like, uh, Tom Savini talked about being a kid and just doing the makeup for fun, and he would just go down to the TV station and, like, bring his friends that he'd dress up as, you know, zombies, or maybe it was probably free zombies, so maybe, like, he'd dress them <laughs> up as Frankenstein or whatever, and they would just let him into the movie studio, and that's right. kind of how he's kind of really got started. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, I I think it's interesting because it's a genre that I think has like more than one side or dimension. Right. It, it's you know what I'm saying. It's like I think part of it is the fascination you know with horror, which is like and horror is all about sort of contending psychologically with death to some degree. And uh, but there's always a sense of fun that I think the fans are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, a fun, and I think. Uh, which is why I think uh, movies that are maybe not such great movies and are and are laughable are very much in favor with horror fans. They, you know, more than anybody, they sort of pioneered being able to enjoy something that maybe wasn't great, but it sure was entertaining. Yeah, because it could still be fun. Like, is this like a bad drama? Is probably not really like a fun movie to watch. No, a bad drama. I think bad. people just pretty much turn off as soon as they realize <laughs> it's bad. Right. But yeah, but there's some charm to it. And I uh, really like for me, I like all different horror. So it really depends what mood I'm in. I could watch something silly, right. but sometimes I want something really serious or I like gory stuff. So I like all kinds. Yeah, you're just, you know, you're just looking for something that, that presses your buttons, really. Yeah. So um, I saw you're credited for, for Dawn of the Dead, a zombie. So how did that come about? Did you just hear they were making it and, and head on down? Yeah, I, I, um, I had uh, I had already uh, been working for a, a couple of years with uh, the partners I eventually worked with on Spookies, Brendan Faulkner and Thomas Doran. And Brendan uh, calls me one day and says, well, here's making the Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead sequel, Dawn of the Dead in Pennsylvania. And he says, and they're, they're looking for, uh, for extras. They're looking for people to play zombies. And 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 neither the Living Dead was like really another key picture in the development of my film sensibilities. Meaning, I had uh, I was still like uh, I think I was in my early teens, or I I forget exactly. But I remember reading. I don't know if you've ever seen Roger Ebert's article about uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Not sure. Uh, and and Ebert in later years apologized for this article, but he basically like basically said there's this terrible horrendous piece of crap movie <laughs> that your kids are being shown at kitty matinees and you know who in their right mind would show this to children and i and i've never heard anywhere outside of this article that it was shown at kitty matinees <laughs> right but but he thoroughly condemned it yeah right? 
And then years later, he became a Romero fan. <laughs> and then he so. <laughs> I remember because uh, I grew up watching uh, Cisco and Ebert, and I wouldn't always agree, but he would get really, they would get really mad at, at a lot of horror stuff. Like, like over the, like it was strange, like how upset they would get. And then they would, you know, now the terms doxing, like you give people's address or whatever, but they right. would like tell everyone the producers and like how to contact them. And it was, it was weird. <laughs> well, I think that's fair game myself. <laughs> sure. I guess. I don't know. But yeah. I guess. I mean, it depends. I mean, a lot of movies turn out bad intentionally, not intentionally, but because there wasn't enough care really put into them and others simply turn out bad through any number of, un, you know, un, unforeseen circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I've made a movie like that. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into that. So, uh, so when you get there, what's that experience like, uh, you know, to become a zombie in, in Dawn of the Dead? Um, well, first of all, we dro- uh, he says, let's go. And of course, that day, there, there's a 12 hour, we, we drove 12 hours in blinding snow. There was a blizzard the entire time. I mean, we it literally like, you know, couldn't see more than maybe 20 feet in front of us the entire time. And uh, we got there uh, the night before we, st- we stayed for a weekend. And uh, we walked in and we were greeted pretty warmly i mean and 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 the whole atmosphere was very friendly and relaxed um uh i was given a copy of the script you know i oh i I did i did a magazine interview for someone at the same time so i had like a a sense of of purpose beyond just being a zombie and uh they were just incredibly you know cooperative uh you know and it was a low budget relatively production i think i think the whole budget was around a million maybe a little under a million at that time yeah which would be and, good right now, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, weird to think. But. And, uh, you know, he, uh, I think, and I got the impression with Romero that he was just delighted to be able to make this movie now and to have uh, enough. I, I mean, aside from the, the, the one thing he said he was frustrated that he couldn't do was to, like, uh, destroy major parts of the mall that they were shooting. <laughs> All right. And, and if you look at the film, he sort of, Anything that's destroyed is really sort of something artificial or temporary that was just there for the for the movie. Um, he doesn't get to crash into st- storefronts with the motorbike gang or anything like that. Yeah, but he was really delighted. He was happy. I, we got there at a time they had shot most of the film, and he said, "Well, I've got enough. You know, I could I could just call it quits right now. You know, but we have a little time. We have a little money. I'm just sort of coming up with like the, the wildest ideas that I can." And that's how we wound up. Brendan and myself wound up in the scene where the uh, biker gang led by Savini, Tom Savini, uh, crash uh, breaks into the mall and uh, they break into a bakery. And so they decide to start hitting the zombies in the face with pies. And I get hit in the face with seltzer from uh, Savini. <laughs> right. So that stuff wasn't in the original script then, the pie. Oh, it's not. In, I, like I said, I got a copy of the script. And and I don't know if you know this about Romero's scripts. Uh, have you ever seen one of Romero's scripts? No, I haven't actually. He he. Uh, the standard Hollywood script is like 120 or 110 pages or less, and you're expected to write in a certain format. The script I got, and I and I found out Romero did all of his scripts this way, is double spaced the entire script because I think he just found it easier to concentrate on details, make notes. Uh, change things uh, there. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and, and movie making in, in any case, it, I mean, this was just for for him and for the set more than anything else. Uh, 
so I, th- I, I kind of, I dug that, that he, he did something like that, that, uh, uh, you know, he sort of went against the grain there, which, which he's always, he was always sort of known for. Mm-hmm. He, he, uh, he ultimately, even though he had some success in Hollywood, I don't think he really ever got accepted by the mainstream Hollywood in the way he, sh- he should have, or might've been. Yeah. So, um, so were you then, you're not in the Italian cut, I assume. Oh yes, I'm in the Italian cut. They are because I, I, I thought they cut out, you know, most of the comedy. Um, that I think was left in, and actually, I'm thinking. No, actually, not. Hold on, let me think here. There's there's three cuts. There's Romero's uh, standard cut, which played most of the theaters in the U.S., etc. There's Romero's extended cut, which was actually I saw a. Um, an early uh, preview of the film when it was finished. And that's the first version I saw. So that version I think is like 15 or 20 minutes or something longer. And uh, then there's the Italian cut. Now have you, you've seen the Italian cut? Yeah. It's been a while. Cause I have the box set that had all the different cuts. When I finally saw the Italian cut, I was astounded by the fact that it's, it's radically a different movie in, in yes. so many ways. Um, my personal opinion is it's not as effective. I, it, yeah, I agree. It, it, it goes from being a horror movie with suspense. It has gore, yeah, but it, it also has suspense scenes that are played out pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. And Dario Argento just cuts like right to the heart of every scene. And it's really an action movie. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a horror action movie. <laughs> and Romero's original, his cut had that element, but I think his was intended to be a little more... Yeah, thoughtful if, and, you, and if you build up to these things it means a lot more right exactly and i i uh so i've never and i haven't seen i've only seen that cut once and I, I probably should take another look at it sometime but i always when i saw it i felt weird because i felt a lot of what i felt about the romero cut was not in this version yeah yeah i agree because that was always my favorite uh my favorite zombie movie growing up and then when i got the box set and i got to see the italian cut to me i was like actually let down i was like oh well they kind of ruined the movie to me right now but i am i am in a couple of additional shots like long shots i think uh i'm wandering around in the background there that are not in romero's cuts yeah so when that movie comes out, then uh, what's it like to go and and see, uh, I assume that's your first time being in a movie, seeing yourself on the big screen. And, um, and, uh, I'm trying to remember, I because I actually had the the weird circumstance. I was involved with a uh, at the age of 19 when I was in school. I was going to the State University at uh, Purchase in New York, and I became uh, a, a student in a class that was being taught by Roy Frumkus, who was the became the producer and writer of Street Trash. And, Pardon me, and, 13 cool gadgets back Excuse me, excuse me, my computer is 2021. Stop. Okay. <laughs> um, he did a class and he had this idea to try and make an anthology horror movie through the class. You know, it was a film course. And uh, to have uh, students direct some of the episodes and to bring in professionals to direct other episodes. So uh, I did, uh, I had an episode that I directed and never got finished. Unfortunately, the whole project got basically sort of squelched by the school to some degree. Uh, but Wes Craven was involved in that and did one wow. of the episodes. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it uh, that was not my first time maybe on, in a big professional movie, in a, in a right. uh, you know, big screen professional movie. However, 
scenes from the movie eventually wound up purchased by a third party and wound up as uh, in the title sequences for Dr. Butcher MD, the American cut of uh, Zombie Holocaust. That's very cool. So was Wes Craven in, in their class then, or how was his involvement? He was he was friendly with Roy. Roy said, "Hey, you know, we're doing this thing that's like you know next to no budget, sixteen yeah. millimeter, etc." And yeah, and he came in and did you know his own little story. And uh, on the uh, I'm trying to remember because there are on the Doctor uh, Butcher DVD and uh, Blu-ray there are uh, you know some of these uh, clips beyond clips beyond what appeared in the movie, some additional stuff. Um, and actually, and actually, this is a project, like I said, it never got finished. But more recently, I've had people constantly asking me if there's every, any way to get the footage out there. So who knows? Yeah. Um, Tristan, do you have a question? I'm always um, curious about horror creators' fears. So I'm wondering if you have any phobias you can share with us. Um, it's weird because I love horror movies. But they usually don't scare me, <laughs> meaning um, I can be shocked at something that, like, you know, jumps out at you like like anybody. Uh, but uh, I don't think I, ha- I, I have the same sense of dread that some people get. I mean, there are people I know who literally cannot look at a horror film or watch it. They just become too rattled, and it's, it's more than they can cope with. Um, and I guess I'm looking at it from a different perspective. But I, uh, for me, suspense scenes probably work better than anything and combined with other elements because I think if you are a director who knows how to create suspense, you know, if you can just, you've got the person, the audience directly involved with what you're doing. They're, you know, they're not just like, you know, waiting for somebody to, uh, to spout blood or something. There's actually something beyond that that they're, they're focusing on. And uh, so I, I think that type of thing. Uh, I also am a big believer in uh, psychological horror and creating atmosphere. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's, I find it frustrating at times because so many films and so many fans seem focused almost entirely on the gore aspect. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much more to explore there. And, uh, you know, I see gore as sort of the spice. Sure. It's weird because sometimes I'll even see people will say, um, for Walking Dead, for example, they'll say it's not horror because there's too much um, character development. And, and, and I was just like, that's you can't the just reason, have that's nonstop. Not the you know? That it's not horror. There's, there are other reasons that it's not horror. Um, Walking Dead, which I s- sort of like the first, the, the TV, the movie mm-hmm. they made, they did a, the first year or two, I thought, you know, was, was reasonable. But it became what George Romero said about it when they invited him to direct episodes, which was, this is a, this is a, a soap opera with zombies, which is really what it is. And there's, I think you could get along with, with everything they're doing. I think, however, you have to keep the sense of dread almost constant with something like that. And in The Walking Dead, I feel that they're interested in telling a different kind of story. That uh, the zombies really are the second. Um, when the zombies come in and walk dead, they usually are dealt with so quickly, like they're not even you know a threat to anybody. It's almost like an afterthought. They can they can kill uh, with they. I remember in one episode they actually killed one with they hit him with a toy um, plane and it, and their right. head. Exploded. And I was just like, come on, 
And, and, no, I, and I also question. I also question the way. And, and The Walking Dead has probably standardized this more than any of say the older zombie movies in the eighties and nineties. But um, is it really that easy to kill someone the way they kill zo- or kill a zombie or anything the way that they kill a lot of these creatures in in The Walking Dead? I mean, can you just take uh, any like sharp knife and plunge it into someone's skull? Uh, I think unless you're pretty damn strong, even the sharpest hunting knife is not just going to pass through some, somebody's like skull a, easily. Yeah, I said that you wanted one. It was like a model plane. And then uh, there's one episode where they use a hose and they killed like a whole horde of zombies with the hose. It just blew them all apart. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't I've never tried to destroy a human skull. So I don't know. But I assume it's not that easy. No, it, it just um, plus I, the, the, I'm. At times, uh, I've been amazed by the extreme gore and, and explicitness of, of, of dismemberment and, and destruction of bodies on the show. It's the kind of thing I guess I never expected to see in something so mainstream. Well, I never, um, I've brought this up to people before. It's like uh, when I was a kid, like to think like you could see a Dawn of the Dead shirt somewhere, like you'd have to send for it, like in Fangoria or something like right. that. Uh, and now, like, you not that long ago, you not so much now because it's not that as popular, but uh, you could go into Walmart and see, like, lunch boxes with, uh, with um, The Walking Dead or, like, kids' clothes. And it's just. Well, every- that's the thing. The Walking Dead somehow crossed a line, and it's almost like a family friendly show in some ways. Depending yeah. On your family. Yeah, and it's a weird thing. And I don't know why we're talking so much about The Walking Dead, but <laughs> uh, when, then, then when they brought in. Um, Negan, it really turned off a lot of people because it really actually then turned to really like uh, he was like a very sadistic guy, and then it turned off some of the fans because it was too like uh, it, was, it, was, it actually started to become horrific. Yeah, yeah, and I actually thought that stuff was actually the best stuff in years. So, I, I but now know. it's come back around again because like I, I work in an elementary school, yeah. and they had Walking Dead books there at their book fair. And uh, and Negan was on the cover a while. Oh, really? I was just like, wow, that's so bizarro to be. Yeah, the guy who beats people. So I really yeah. wonder how, how. I mean, because that's the kind of thing that, at one time, would have been strictly forbidden to the children. Oh, yes. and now, I, I, you know, at what point did somebody say, "Oh, we 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 screwed up here. We were completely <laughs> off base." I I I would assume if this was an independent movie, it wouldn't be allowed, but. Since it's like a big mainstream thing, it's okay. Which that doesn't make any sense, but it's the only thing I could figure out. I mean, to be honest, and, and uh, I'm guessing this isn't a popular opinion, but the uh, Sci-Fi Network's uh, Z Nation, which was their Walking Dead ripoff, I found far more entertaining than the Walking it was Dead. Good. I liked it too. You know, it was it had it, it was actually what I was looking for in a zombie series, meaning the zombies were an ever-present threat. There was lots of, of laughs. There was lots of suspense situations that were given a lot of time, and uh, and the characters were were not bad at all. The, you know, the act, the cast was good. I felt I felt the show worked for what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it very entertaining too. I was uh, kind of sad when it ended, but <laughs> so um, Igor and the Lunatics. I I have not seen this movie, but I saw it was, uh, what you did, you know, before uh, Spookies. Uh, can you tell us about Igor and the okay, Lunatics? This is can you myself, find it anywhere? Uh, my, my 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 two partners, Brendan Faulkner's uh, Tom Doran. You know, I mean, we were we made several ill 
faded uh, attempts to get features off the ground. And this is from about uh, the mid-70s onward, um, you know, into the, the mid-80s, almost for, I guess, 10 years or so. Um, and uh, they started... They they started visiting the set of this movie that was being shot in upstate New York, I think in Brewster, New York, called Like Father, as in Like Father, Like Son. And it was supposedly a horror movie. But, you know, they went up there and they could see that it was a, you know, first-time director. They, you know, pretty damn low budget. They And they really didn't seem to have a sense of what they were doing. It was like a horror movie. And they took a look at the script and they said, well, you have one problem. There are, there are no horror scenes in, it, <laughs> in this any place. And so they started, like, contributing ideas and making suggestions and because you know they had a little more experience they were being listened to and eventually they wound up starting to direct scenes and eventually got credited as uh, directors of action and suspense sequences which is an interesting credit <laughs> um and uh i got uh, asked if i wanted to get involved and so i became uh the well, gosh, what was I? I guess I was the production manager more. I mean, it was, I, I didn't even seriously think about what my title was at the time. Uh, but for uh, several weeks, uh, they, they were shooting mostly uh, outdoor locations, uh, some of them, you know, out in uh, semi-wilderness areas. And uh, it was an interesting experience. It was like, you know, like rock bottom budget, pretty much uh, mostly first time crew members and people involved but uh and eventually it got sold to trauma who completely who just cut it into a very different version of the story uh, how how so um they added it like uh if i'm re- trying to remember here they added like narration and, and flashbacks and just um they, I think, uh, they tried to focus the ad campaign. Eventually, we'll, we'll keep in mind it was originally called "Like Father." Then, it went, then it was about uh, the makers, the producer was calling it "Bloodshed," and they eventually made it "Igor and the Lunatics." And they focused on this character, Igor, who, in the original version of the film, was not a character. In their script, the script that they had, he was just he was a guy they brought in as one of the act, sort of the extras, just like he was. They got like local actors to come in and play scenes, and this guy seemed to um, improvise uh, very uh, bizarrely and and eccentrically, and so uh, you know we sort of latched onto this guy as somebody who could actually play up something and and was kind of interesting, and eventually he got a name and he became a character and he became more involved in the overall movie and in fact you know includes more more heavily in almost every scene uh than uh, originally and uh he uh wound up as sort of the the selling point of the movie very strange uh did you have any like personal dealings with trauma uh i not on this project i mean the the you know the producer of this sold the picture um eventually uh you know the, the uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to think here. The uh, I have I have not seen to tell the truth. There's probably like a new remaster out on Blu-ray or something at this point. So I have not seen if it looks any better. But it always I mean you know, it look it looked for years like all these movies that Troma put out that were on VHS etc. Where it, you know it had kind of a worn kind of a weird color scheme look and you know it it it, it looked cheap. It definitely looked cheap. Um, and uh, 
you know, I'd say uh, it was a good learning experience, and it prepped us for you know what we were about to do with Spookies a couple of years later. Uh, the uh, the guy who played the the villain in uh, in Igor and the Lunatics, the main villain, the cult leader, was uh, Jim Glenn, and eventually he wound up playing uh, the Grim Reaper in Spookies. Oh, nice. Because we, we needed somebody that was tall enough. <laughs> well, yeah, that works out. So the, this group of, 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 of friends of yours, uh, did, where did you all meet and, you know, get together to start making movies? I, like I said, I took this class with Roy Frumkus at uh, the State University had purchased. And uh, Brendan uh, also happened to be in the class. And Tom had been a friend uh, of Brendan since grade school. So they had a long association. And Tom came in just to check out the class. You know, and it's just we had all of us because all of us uh, had grown up, you know, and started at a very early age getting interested in films, you know, and we all had this interest in horror. Uh, you know, the, uh, there was uh, a lot of just uh, excitement at finding anybody who even had the interest. At that time, bear in mind that being a fan of, well, being a fan of almost anything made you a weirdo. But horror especially, even though lots of other kids liked horror, yeah. to come out and uh, it's like you didn't want to be seen with a copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland, if possible. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I mean, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons and chess and watching obscure horror movies and pro wrestling. And so I was not very cool. But uh, I think today you would be cool for doing all these things. I think so. And I think... I think that kind of stuff is cool because I think what what a lot of people never got or don't, never do get is they look at this stuff and think it's like oh this is lowbrow uh, you know not not fit for uh, a proper adult and I think and this goes for wrestling in, in addition to like monster movies I mean there's just there's a sense of fun there there's a sense of like oh all right we can do something and a part of us can take it seriously and another part of us can get off on it in a very different way. And it's not a matter of being, you know, entertainment that's fit only for, for certain kinds of people. I think, uh, I think it's a universal thing. I think anybody can enjoy, uh, you know, a movie of, of that sort, whether it's, you know, whether it's directed, aimed at adults or maybe, you know, aimed at a slightly younger level. I think there's a lot of universalities in the, in, in horror movies yeah. and, and always have been. Yeah. So uh, your teacher, uh, Roy, um, did you stay in touch with him? I have not, unfortunately. We had we had a, a difference of opinion about something another number of years ago, so we have not been in touch recently. No. Well, uh, well, that's too bad. Hopefully, yes, maybe things can work worked out here at some point. But did you stay in touch with him to, to make films you know, after after the classes? Um, well, yeah, I got, I, after I did Spookies, uh, which followed, uh, yeah. well, Spookies, Spookies, Lunatics, yeah. uh, he, he brought me on to, uh, Street Trash on which I was the production manager, uh, co-producer, associate producer, and, uh, I played a memorable part. Yes, you did. And we'll talk about that here eventually. So, uh, Spookies, uh, how, how does Spookies come about? What, what's like the origin of Spookies? We had a project. We had a few projects that we tried to get underway. That we tried to, uh, you know, we were shooting, uh, pro- attempting to shoot a promo, as many people do, and then get it out there. Everything was still sixteen millimeter for us at the time. Thirty five was out of the question financially, and video had yet to come of age. And uh, we had a project uh, for a while called. Uh, let's see, we had we there was uh, uh, Bloody Pulp, which was supposed to be another anthology type film. And uh, that came 
close to so i mean that got partially made and then just never got completed and we even though we did get like some coverage in fangoria and a couple of other places and uh <clears throat> then there was a thing called freak show that was an you know again we were trying to do anthologies too partially because we all had ambitions to direct and we felt that was the the way to go about it and uh you know and as i said the one film like that that i have worked on which was the uh, the one i worked on with roy which was called tales that will tear your heart out um unfortunately that also just never got finished i think uh what happened was the school that we were making it at at first was like oh you our students are making a film and they 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 sort of were behind that and then i think they got a closer idea of the type of film it was and i think they did not really want that kind of association (laughs) fair enough fair enough but So, uh, uh, Spooky's um, on Wikipedia, which, you know, I don't know how, you know, true everything is here. Uh, oh, true now that it was for a long time. Okay. Uh, I remember our very first show, we had Sid Haig, and, and I mentioned something that I read on Wikipedia, and he's like, where did you read that? And I was like, Wikipedia, and he's like, he's like, fuck that, you know, it's, you know, they don't believe that, so. But, uh, well, <laughs> As you as you know, virtually anyone can edit Wikipedia. I think I think now you have to have a little more authorization to be able to do it. Yeah. But for a good long time, you know, anybody could just sign on and and change things. So they uh, so anyway uh, for Spookies uh, originally was Twisted Souls. Yes. So uh, how how did it go from Twisted Souls to to Spookies? Um, well. Uh, we had a blowout with our backer, who was a bit of a madman in uh, in post production. We had the film in a rough cut form, and his uh, his bullying and his uh, panic and his uh, his personal insecurities sort of made it very difficult even to communicate with him about basic things. And we we wound up uh, just we were forced to walk off the project. I mean, he was just uh, treating us in such a, a humiliating manner. And he then looked for someone. To, we had the only thing that needed to be completed were special effects, opticals for the climax, and we had somebody who was going to do that. That was part of our uh, group. And uh, when he just took the film back and took it out of our hands, none of our people would willingly come back to him to help finish the film. He brought another person in who was originally just supposed to edit or re-edit the film, who told him, "Oh." Uh, this film can't be saved. Uh, like more than half the footage is completely unusable, and she essentially conned her way into directing enough new material to constitute like a minute or two more footage, so that the now the than our our footage, so that the film is now roughly like fifty five percent her footage and forty five percent ours. She developed a fr- as anyone who knows the film is uh, is familiar with. Uh, she had a framing story about a sorcerer who was in the house where the body of the action took place, and uh, so the entire film was recut and restructured to accommodate this edition uh, for no reason. I, I I I can't stress that enough. I mean that's that's the really s- sad and and silly thing about it. So um. How so when the I assume that would have a big effect on what you thought of the movie at the time because you know oh, we were we, well, we were devastated because it was not only like not only did we lose control of the film but it was turned into something entirely foreign to our intentions and our sensibilities um, 
as uh, my my uh, late partner Tom Doran, who was one of the directors, you know, at one point he said he said there isn't an ent- in the entire movie as it exists now as Spookies, there isn't a single cut of one shot to another that is what I intended and what I had already done. So that every virtually everything is just changed indiscriminately to accommodate this woman's uh, attempt to uh, get a directing credit. So, as your view, just, you know, of the movie change over the years, since, you know, yes. you said now there's an uprising of people are into it. Because, yes, I because I, it was very difficult for me to contend with it for a long time because it did, it, it really put, it was an obstacle in my path. It made it hard for us to get, financing for for movies after that because i mean you they people say well what have you done and you say well this except we we didn't exactly do this film as it appears here that you're watching uh you know and it's anytime you have to make those kind of excuses for your work you're sort of defeating yourself and uh and the times we did attempt to use it as examples of work uh uh we were in one case uh, my partner tom went to roger corman's uh, company at that time i think it was concord and uh, he was basically laughed out of the office. That's you know that's sad. But, it is. Um, so w- w- when does when does your like kind of view? Because obviously, right then you're not gonna you know have fond memories of making the movie. W- when does that change for you? Um, well, I mean, it sort of was softened by time over quite a number of years, and then. Uh, the internet, which sort of helps with everything that people want, you know, communicate about. Um, I started to become aware in the '90s, really, that something, you know, that there were fans of the film, that there were people who did appreciate it. The one thing that still managed to shine through to some extent, not to the extent that I think it would have in the original version, uh, because so much of the footage is cut out, but all these rubber monsters that we created, practical uh, on set of they're very fun. I watched well, it. Again it. It's, it's like that we fell from the start was the core of what we were doing. And uh, that still manages to be enjoyed by people, which means a lot because it was hard for us to like look at it and feel anything but contempt for a certain period of time. Yeah. But the fact that I guess enough of what we originally intended and what we did shines through, uh, people are now also aware of the story and stories behind the making of it there's a a rondo award-winning documentary called twisted tale about the making of the film and all the controversies and the ensuing uh post-production and and many years beyond that um and so the story is now sort of something that a lot of horror fans have become aware of they have a different view of the film because if if you see the documentary it totally changes whatever you think of the film Mm. uh because for you and that's another thing too is for years the online reviews of, uh, of Spookies were just, you know, abominable for the most part. Aside from people sometimes recognizing the effects work, but uh, because no one really understood why this movie was the way it was, it was disjointed and had a story that seemed to stop and start combined with another story that seemed to stop and start, and they were sort of somehow connected but didn't seem to be connected. Yeah. Uh, why do the uh, why do the underground the um, the zombies un- uh, in the basement why why do they make farting noises I don't know if this is you okay know. first of all let's get this straight they're not uh, zombies they right. were never zombies they were never intended to be zombies if you look at them <laughs> they're not really too human 
they're sort of made of of, of earth, basically. They're, and we call them the muck men. The muck while men. we were shooting, and so and amazingly that somehow got out there even though we got disconnected from the film the term muck men still got out it got into the marketing for the film originally and through the years uh the muck men have become like one of the iconic figures in spookies at this point uh you know and essentially i mean they were uh these you know full body suits that that were designed to look big and clumsy and and uh and uh they never farted in our movie, all right. <laughs> um, our our wonderful uh, backer Michael Lee of uh, who was the brains behind Vipco, the uh, video nasties company in the the UK that was uh, sending all these films all over uh, England in in the uh, the eighties into the nineties. Um, he uh, had a a sort of an obsession with fart jokes and things like that. So when the new editor director was recutting the film, she sort of, uh, uh, well, actually, I think it was her sound man who initially did it as a joke. And then Michael was delighted by it. And so it remained in the film. Yeah. The thing that I discovered uh, only after listening just to the, the, uh, the soundtrack, just the music alone, is that about 90% of that farting is contained in the music track. Weird, yeah, because that's another thing that it's very it's very out of place in that scene. It doesn't it, it's odd. It doesn't, well, it wasn't supposed to, you know. Yeah, it no, yeah, yeah. It's like the film was. They look very cool. Yeah, it was repurposed for for a different effect. If if uh, that's a way to put it, I mean, there's a, it's frustrating too because so many scenes, uh, like I said, the monster scenes especially, I don't understand why they were reduced in time, except so that the new director could claim more of the running time to justify her taking a director's credit. Um, but the muckmen in the scene in the movie, as it appears, you only seem to think there are two muckmen. Mm-hmm. There were actually three, but the way she recut it makes at one point, one of, one of them who was like the third muckman is actually the second, second muckman in the, in the next shot. So things uh, look very different and feel very different. Very strange. Um, yeah, but I'm happy there's also some stop motion in the movie. I'm a big fan of stop motion. Yeah, there there uh, there is for a couple of, of like brief moments, including the the destruction, sort of uh, dissolving of a woman's face, and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the other one that uh, I think it may have to. Well, actually, there's stop motion that was also cut out because you re- you recall there's a scene where a a uh, an Oriental a, a Chinese woman call, uh, turns into a spider. And that scene again, all a lot of the the what I consider the money shots for a, a horror movie of this sort were just removed. So we originally had that she was flanked uh, by these two boxes that open up, and these like large, like football sized spiders come out of it. Uh, but uh, that got removed. So because it's very cool when he when he gets the life sucked out of him, but it is very brief. I can see how that would probably was longer at some point. Well, if you look at the film, almost all the horror scenes, the, like where the monsters get to do whatever they do, are under a minute. And that's, I mean, we wouldn't have gone through all this trouble that we went through making the damn thing if, if those scenes were going to be reduced to that kind of, of running time. Because it, it just, uh, it makes no logical sense. But considering uh, considering the, the dis- disagreements we had with our backer, you know, I, I just have to... 
I have to like sort of surrender to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, Tristan, you have another question? Do you have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> yes, I need to finish writing Spookies too. Well, I'm very which excited is, about this. Yeah, which is what I'm, I'm doing. Um, Glad Tristan asked this. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Although, although I'm looking, I'm trying to come up with a different title than Spookies too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we uh, we've had uh, a lot of inquiries about that in the past couple of years, um, and actually, my partner Tom passed away in, if I recall, I think it was 2017. And you know, and we continued to work together, the two of us, in years since we did Spooky, and kept attempting and failing to really get, get more films made. And uh, at one point, he at, for a good long time actually, he was he was just totally despondent about the situation with Spookies, what it had done to his his career path, and how foolish he felt it made him look, and how he couldn't deal with it. And and then at a certain and he had, and we had discussed like laughingly a few times. Oh well, what if somebody wants us to do a sequel? Or something and he'd be like, "I'm not doing a sequel to Spookies. I will never ever have anything to do with a sequel to this film." And then he surprised me and came up with like a short uh, synopsis for an idea. And this is back in 2013 before we. We had been for a while ourselves campaigning to try and get the film out there again. Um, we uh, thought, you know, that if 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 it did come out and it did strike uh, a chord somewhere, that there was a chance we could get financing for another film. And the first thing they would be asking about is the sequel to Spookies, of course. So. Uh, so he left this outline, and uh, back then, you know, I, I thought it was it was worthwhile. And more recently, the opportunity actually came up, and there was a reason to go ahead. And uh, so I took his, uh, he had like eight, ten pages or something of, of, of a basic story, and uh, and I fleshed it out and changed things and, and reworked a lot of things, but uh, we had talked a lot about just the aesthetics of it and how we'd like to do it. And, and, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm at, uh, I guess down to the last 25% or so of this screenplay based on this that I'm writing. And it's so much more ambitious than spookies. It's like, I think a lot of fans will not know what to think. Because well, that's it's very exciting. I hope you, I uh, hope you get this finished and, and, and created. I do too. I've had, uh, some promising responses thus far. Uh, I feel good about it. And uh, there's also the fact that I didn't want to use this sudden uh, resurgence of interest in my work to just go out and do something, uh, you know, cheap and quick just to capitalize and make a couple of dollars. It's like, un unfortunately, I guess Tom and I, uh, for you know, not to sound pretentious, but I guess that we looked at it in terms of being artists as opposed to like, uh, you know, how rich we could get. Um, and we we definitely succeeded at the, at the the not getting rich part, but uh, but our motivations were because we could see something in our minds and we want we needed to get it out there, and that really is what it came down to. We could even when for many years we went along and just didn't real nothing was none of our projects seemed to stir, nothing seemed to really be going anywhere, and we'd keep going and keep going, and we talked about how we could stop 
ourselves from making films. Seriously, I mean, we, we just, it's like, you know, if we could just stop doing this and do something else, and it always came down to, well, what else is there to do? I saw, I saw in your Facebook, you posted some uh, storyboards from uh, the unmade Sonny Bean. Yeah. yeah. Which was very cool. And uh, years ago, Troy drew, because uh, Troy draws a lot of caricatures for the show, and uh, he did um, us as a bunch of, uh, I think it was like uh, British um, killers, and, and he did one of us as Sonny Bean. Oh, yeah. great. I always yeah, love that, that whole concept. It's just interesting. That that was a story. Tom was Scottish, and he that was like his lifelong since, <laughs> since, you know, since around the the first time that I met him. Sony Bean, the story fascinated him, and he wanted to do a, a historical horror film, really. And he wrote in trying to get it made. He wrote like numerous versions of it, meaning he wrote like you know full blown big budget version. You know that was one script. Then there was like a micro budget version that was, you know, uh, done very sparingly and very, very stylized. And uh, then he came up with a modern day version that would took place in in uh, London. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, so he was just trying some way to express this type of story. And uh, and he eventually got onto and uh, one of the last things he was working pretty intensely on before he passed away was a project uh, called Christy Clique, who is another Scottish cannibal, or or at least possibly a Scottish cannibal le- legend. And Tom did a fair amount of research, and he felt it was very debate. Even though Sonny Bean was supposedly a true historical account, mm-hmm. that it was somewhat debatable uh, as to whether he was a real person or not. And Christy Clique was another one. This was a guy who also was a cannibal and. And killed people uh, and uh, murdered them with a, a huge uh, iron and wooden uh, thing called a clique, which sort of uh, looked like a steam shovel almost that would grab people by the head and lift them up. And uh, so he he was this was his like uh, sort of uh, substitute for Sony Bean and and with di- and with digital technology he saw that he could do all kinds of things in terms of settings and atmosphere that were impossible uh on a small budget before so he really went all out i mean he was uh he was storyboarding he was designing sets and costumes and he was actually he was still he was he started had started making props and costumes and everything and we were ready to to go ahead with this and uh you know he unfortunately uh did not live to uh, to really get it underway. Um, again, it's another. There's several of his projects because it was a great idea, man. Like really, a good design guy, and 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 always uh, had a lot of terrific insights. That's why why I worked with him among many other reasons. But he's got like a few of his older projects. I'd like to try and do something with. Yeah, it's very because I know there's been stuff that's like inspired by Sonny Bean, but as far as I know, I don't think there's any. I know there's a. I've watched um, a documentary, but I don't think there's any like uh, just a movie version of Sonny Bean. There's not of the actual story. Surprisingly, no one has done the actual historical uh, tale of Sonny Bean. Tom, like I mean, he for as you may know that Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes is based on Sonny Bean, right? Right. And that's probably the most well-known version of the story that's gotten out there into popular culture. But, uh, you know, I think uh, 
he he wanted like i said he wanted to do it uh on he had several scripts he had several ways that he thought he could could do this story and uh interestingly uh, he eventually he wrote a novel based on his original sony being you know the the elaborate version and he uh got it out there he had a website he was selling the book online and it was called the lords of darkness and then like a couple of years later um uh, Lionsgate uh, film distribution company comes out with a movie that they retitle. It's not wasn't the original title, but they retitle it "Lord of Darkness," and it was a sort of pseudo pseudo modern version of Sony Bean. What a coincidence! Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Well. The- I really hope you, you know, get some of this stuff uh, created. I did see, you know, you recently you're doing some stuff with Dustin Ferguson. Uh, yeah, I actually, Dustin has, I got to say, Dustin has been a, a major supporter of, of mine since uh, going back before uh, our Blu-ray came out, before uh, a lot of the current um, interest has uh, ever taken place. Um, Dustin uh, was the one who recut Spookies and did what his supposed version of a director's cut, which means he just took out all the added footage right. and then released the bootleg VHS or DVD <laughs> of, of the recut version, which, which, which I always appreciated as sort of like a gesture and everything else. Although my, mm-hmm. my partner, Tom hated it. Cause it's like, why, why should I like another version of the movie? That, nothing <laughs> that I still didn't make her, right? yeah. that I still did. Yeah. <laughs> but you tried though. It's uh, it's the thought that counts. No, I, I appreciated that, and I have remained in touch with him. And I lent my name to his uh, film. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Hell of the Screaming Undead, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I thought I owed him a payback of some sort. And and Dustin, I, have you seen any of Dustin's movies? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Dustin. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually I actually produced the uh, his documentary that you're in, Stale Popcorn and Stale. Oh really? I didn't know. Well, why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious um but dustin to me is kind of like amazing because i mean he just he's like he uh, makes he, like a movie a month or something yeah uh, roughly <laughs> yeah yeah and gets it out there and gets distribution and gets overseas distribution and it's amazing to me because um to be honest it's the kind of stuff i at this point in my life in my career i i really i feel the need to attempt to do more ambitious type of work than that uh, but he makes say. he makes consistent profits he makes uh fans all the time he's got you know he's got several series of movies that he's done with you know doing his own sequels um yeah, I, I mean, Massacre. You know, yeah i mean it's, it's what he's accomplished is actually quite impressive and mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he's making billions of dollars. I mean, but it, it is his primary. You know that that is his only job is making movies, which you know. Right, but that's people. that's the point. Right. You know, if somebody if someone wanted to pay me a small salary and I could make movies all the time, I you know I very well consider that. Yeah, and he's a good guy too. He's a nice person. He is, and he's actually he's gone out of his way to help me with things. He's good for advice because he's like I mean I. I don't have the experience, certainly, with like modern distributors and, and various other aspects of the current market. So he's a, he's a great uh, resource, and he's uh, he's very encouraging to other filmmakers, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like him a lot. Um, so uh, Street Trash, uh, how does Street Trash come about? Street Trash came about because um, 
Well, I did Spookies, and I still I remained friendly with Roy throughout uh, all this time. And he told me about this film he was trying to get together based on a short film that one of his students at the School of Visual Arts had done. And uh, and somehow I just most movies don't raise the money that they're looking for. Most low budget films don't get financed. Uh, somehow I, I just instinctively felt, all right, this one will get financed. And it took some time and uh, it got financed. I got hired as a production manager and uh, it was a really great experience. It was, first of all, it was so different from Spookies because there was not this sort of sword hanging over our necks every moment by this, you know, it's eight by o'clock. The, that, hold on a second. No problem. Uh, my devices are going on. <laughs> um, there was not the kind of pressure that we had on Spookies where we, where everything we did was questioned and we had no real sense of being able to simply follow our own instincts or our common sense. Um, and so street trash was just, um, there was a lot of support on every level. Uh, there was, uh, a great sense of, uh, encouraging creativity and taking, you know, there was, there was a, a lot of ability for, I think, everybody from the actors to the, the production people to contribute, to make the film as good as possible. And I'm pretty proud of Street Trash. I think it's a unique I, film. It's still offending people all these years later. And I think yeah, it's... I, uh, I, I love it. Not just because you're here. I think it's a great movie. And I understand it's low budget, but it looks like... It doesn't look it. It looks like a... It's got a lot of production value because, like, the sets are amazing. And, and then it's just got a lot of wild, you know, uh, I don't want to say gory. It's not really gory. Just some wild. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I don't, see, I don't technically, I don't know if it counts as gore when people are spewing out blue and yellow liquid. <laughs> exactly. And where did this, you know, people don't have that in their bodies. It doesn't really happen very often. I, I think uh, the film frequently, and, and it's this is true to this day, but uh, people see it and they respond to the fact that the character, it's basically about a bunch of grungy, skeevy, dishonorable, homeless people and uh, amongst other characters. And they can't, you know, they can't really cope with that. That's just too, you know, too distasteful for them. And so therefore it, uh, many reviews will talk about uh, online reviews. I'm talking, we'll talk about how badly made the film is, how badly acted it is, how photographed it is. And all they seem to be reacting to is they are finding the t- the, the uh, subject matter and the treatment of it distasteful. Which is interesting because, honestly, that's like their reaction to it is, is social commentary itself. Because it's like they're for it's like if people who a lot of people who see homeless people don't want to deal with them because they're like, right, like, I'd rather have that out of sight, out of mind. And then their reaction to the movie is the same way. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I lived in New York City for a long time, and I'm, I'm, I'm a few years out of there. But uh, when I was living there, uh, this is going back to the '70s and to the '80s, uh, especially the, the homeless on the street were just like you know everywhere. It was like you know something you just expected as part of the New York City experience. Um, and when we did Street Trash, we knew it was over the top. It was intended to be tasteless and outrageous and offensive and all this other stuff. Uh, what I find interesting is that in today's era of so-called p- political correctness, people are offended by it in different ways than they were then. Well, how, how so? Um, 
that they object to the portrayal of the homeless, meaning you know that they're not portrayed sympathetically, and uh, you know they're 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 generally sort of uh, unpleasant or weird characters. Now I don't know how many homeless people you've how often you've encountered on the street, but most of the people who are out there and are homeless are, are, you know, have mental and emotional problems that put them there. So yeah, they're, they're weird characters. They're not, you know, the, the next door neighbor. Um, and at the time we made it, I mean, that was one of the things that no one ever brought up. They were offended by the, the melting of people. They were offended by, uh, by your scene. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, bad taste in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and yes, my scene, the the uh, renowned flying uh, penis. Right, right. For people who don't know, it's a castration. It's not like a special talent of yours. It's a, a castration. Oh, God, I wish it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, also, because uh, I've seen it many times, but I watched it again for the interview. And um, was interesting to me, you know, I've seen it before, but so there, there are people who are trying to help the homeless in, in the movie. There's a scene. And they get and the guy gets killed for it, which is like not necessarily <laughs> nice, but I, it's also like it's uh, I, I don't know how to take that. But I, I, I like that it's in there because I think if you, you wouldn't put that in a movie today, people well, bear in mind, bear in mind, it was intended to be a horror film with actual horrific scenes in it. But it was also intended to be a sort of surreal character driven comedy. Mm hmm. So, well, yeah, uh, even like the leader of the group is like something out of Mad Max or something. The, uh, the, yeah, the, well, the you know, like the, the kind the of the big evil guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it uh, I think at the time it was, uh, I think it was sort of different at the time. I think it's still different. I, I, I think, uh, you know, no, nobody's done something, I guess, that delves into that segment of society in quite the same way. Where was that film? Like, was it? Did you just go out to like some? It was primarily in in Brooklyn. It was uh, uh, Jim Muro, the director. His dad uh, operated a an auto wrecking yard there, which was the central location and where we had our production office. And so that whole area was, uh, you know, largely like you know, scrap iron places and you know, auto graveyards and trash. And oh, oh, and then a few blocks away, there was a slaughterhouse. Uh, so that uh, it was an interesting location on, on, on many levels. Was there any actual, da- any real danger, just uh, just being like out there in the junkyard? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's lots of sharp objects everywhere. Right, right. So, and then, you know, there's like metal. Just not metal. think about that. You're all, you know, young guys and you're making a fun movie. You're not going well, to tell the truth. Yeah. It's like when you're young, it's like, you know, it's like you sort of don't pay much attention even half the time unless you're seriously injured. Um, I don't remember any really serious, you know, mentionable uh, injuries to anybody during the making of that. Um, I'm trying to think uh, to tell the truth, the, the, the worst thing that I can remember happening was during uh, the climactic scene where uh, you have Bronson, the villain, and you have um, um, God, I can't remember her name now. The uh, the uh, the uh, um, the Japanese uh, woman who is the um, damn, I can't remember the character name. Uh, who is the uh, the female lead, so to speak? Uh, she. Uh, she did a scene towards the climax there just before the villain's head gets knocked off by a flying gas canister. Uh, 
where she uh, like runs up after after his head has been knocked off, and uh, and he she runs over his head, and his head looks up her skirt, and all kinds of hilarity like that. But when she did that and like went into the shot, she was supposed to fall, and she like seriously like missed the mattress she was supposed to fall on. Oh, so wow. that was, yeah, so she. Got somewhat banged up, but that was about the worst real injury that I recall on the set. Yeah. And we talked a lot about, you know, horror fans. Um, Is that primarily who's in the street trash? Because I don't really even know what genre to call it. It's definitely multi-genre. I mean, to tell the truth, I felt back then, and I think the the years since sort of proved it, but I felt back in the... In the mid '80s or so, I, I felt that they were that a lot of movies were going to were going to do that to try and mix genres and go from one thing to another. And I think Street Trash is a prime example. But I think in a lot of the low budget stuff at that time, you'll see that you'll see like you know where you can't quite be sure it's a horror movie or a comedy or yeah. Or I really personally good. like that because um, I think people get too fixated on what genre a movie is, right. And uh, I mean, most of the stuff I like, you could call it whatever. I mean, as long as it's entertaining, that's all that really matters. To me. Well, I think that is what it comes down to. And it's not necessarily so easy to entertain people. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, there's a lot of people who have failed. Uh, but <laughs> when when they are entertained. I know all about that. <laughs> when they are entertained, I found uh, that they are grateful. And I and so I've had, you know, I've been getting a lot of that kind of gratitude recently for films. Yeah. Um you know, and it and it it, it means something uh, at this point. Even though uh, the something like Spookies was a failure on certain levels, uh, to be able to uh, actually still ha- get these films seen by people and to have people be enthusiastic about them, I mean, I've I've sort of come to, to the realization that my old low budget horror movies that are not mainstream movies have more devoted followers than, than many mainstream movies that everyone knows of. Right. Right. Uh, when we talked a little bit about Ebert, I, I, I grew up watching Cecil Ebert and um, sometimes they get a bad rap because I did find out about movies that I might not have ever known about. Right. This was pre-internet and stuff, but um, I, I even watch some of them now because it's fun for me to go back and watch them and there'll be stuff that was up for Academy Awards or got these huge. And I like, I don't remember this movie or I basically just, rem- I for- totally forgot about it because it came out and might've got rave reviews, but no one cares about it, you know, years later, but then there's something, you know, like, uh, like street trash. And uh, I, I still uh, think about it. Well, I, I think also because a lot of times these films are, are you know, they're, they're small. They're kind of homely and misshapen and uh, maybe they have a bad reputation or something. And I think it's there's a different kind of love that goes to movies like that. When you when you discover something like that and you, and you find, oh, wow, I, this is really just right for me. And it's, it's wonderful. Exactly. You know, and you don't, that doesn't really happen with a big mainstream movie. I mean, it's like sort of... Uh, I think rare that you 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 know like you just you decide oh wow I've had a rev- I'd have a re- I've had a revelation with the latest uh, Fast and Furious movie or something. <laughs> right right yeah uh, yeah Chris Hollick, uh no one ever discusses Jennifer Aspinall when it be- when it comes to great makeup artists can Frank talk about what it was like working with her on the effects in Spookies and Street Trash yes because uh, Spookies was really her first big project now Jennifer I don't know if many people know this. Uh, maybe it's come, been become more common knowledge, but she designed the Toxic Avenger makeup. 
Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I think she was sort of, from what I know, she did not get the the full credit she deserved in terms of what the trauma may have shown in terms of gratitude. But uh, uh, she then, uh, and she was young. She was still, I think, a teen at the time. And she knew we had, you know, various people we knew that were doing makeup and that were going to come into projects we were trying to get together. Jennifer was one of them. And uh, when Spookies became solid and we knew we were making a film, she was one of the people we definitely wanted to bring in. And she's like, she's another one. All the, almost all the makeup and effects people we had were just superb. And we got them at the start of their careers. Uh, you know, a lot of them have gone on to become amongst the top people in the business. But Jennifer is one of them. I mean, Jennifer, is, you know, she's got Emmy Awards. She uh, did all the character and special makeup for Saturday Night Live for many, many years. Um you know, and a pleasure to work with too. You know, like really, just you know, a, g- a good person to have on set and to uh, you know, and, and and creative too. I mean, this is the thing too. It's like I, if nothing else, I pride myself on when I try and find people to work with, and when in the past and up to this day, I really look for people whose creativity and way of doing things or expressing themselves is, in my opinion, superior or unique enough. That uh, you know, it, it really it, it compels me to want to work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tristan, do you have another question? Uh, sure. Uh, do you have any advice for aspiring creators? Um. Uh, study accounting. <laughs> uh, or something. I mean, to be honest, um, it's it's probably easier to work in the entertainment business if you either have some other job that's your form of income and every, you know, and you're do, and you're working that job in order to finance your attempt to be into, in the entertainment business. Um, I, it's, it's, no, it's no matter what you do or how good you are. Uh, I don't think uh, you have any guarantee of finding the success that you want or finding the audience that you want. You just have to keep, going i think perseverance means more than almost anything because it's uh uh you know no nobody ha- uh outside of a few people who are born into it i guess has a, a direct path to becoming a filmmaker or uh, or anything in the entertainment business and do you still uh is there any like current movies that you've liked over the last you know few years that stand out to you you know there probably are but they're probably not even in my head Right. I watch most, I watch like ninety percent of the movies that I watch are like older movies, and this and this goes and I watch movies from all over the world, so I have like hundreds, maybe thousands of movies in my head or that I've seen or that I know about that are foreign films that are really old films. Uh, you know, I love like I mean, I love silent films. I love I love uh, Asian films of all sorts. I, I I really like the medium and what it can do. So I. Um, it's, it's literally the kind of question where I'd have to sit down for a while and think about that. Sure. So I do, I do want to pay note, like you mentioned, uh, Spookies is uh, the Blu-ray came out. It's also currently on Shudder. Um, if people want to uh, watch that, I think it still may also be on Amazon prime. I'm not sure. Okay. And uh, yeah. Uh, is there, it, there must it, be a blue. Including, including, I should mention the uh, Joe Bob Briggs, uh, 
did spookies as part of his show on the last drive-in nice. earlier this year and that uh and i was really pleased about that because it seemed to have come at least in part as a direct result of my writing to him and saying i made this movie i know you've heard of it you have to show it and he did just a few months later oh that's so, pretty awesome yeah, did, did, he credit, did he credit you for for that letter um you know, I, 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 God, I don't even know. Because to, to be honest, I haven't had a chance. I haven't even had a chance to watch the last drive-in version of Spookies yet. I've been so busy, but, uh, but they had previously done Street Trash, and and they had done, and they had actually done a segment focusing on my, on my uh, tasteless scene that I can't believe <laughs> that they actually focused on. Yeah, was that fun to shoot? Well, of course it was. <laughs> you know, I got I was working every day uh, in the office and, and uh, arranging things for the production. So it was a chance to have fun. Yeah. Well, um, what did your family think when they saw the movie? They did not find out. Oh, okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I grew up. Uh, my parents were relatively sort of conservative Pardon and, me. and had Same all kinds of opinions too. on on the. Uh, you know what should and should not be in movies and flying penises and, they're like no, yeah. no the point is, it's, like, not like, it's not like i had just had something to do with like a porn film or something this <laughs> went beyond that <laughs> all right uh where can people follow you if they'd like to uh see what you're up to at the moment i'm primarily on facebook uh under my own name frank farrell last name is f as in frank a-r-e-l uh i also had uh, recently one of my uh really wonderful supporters just put up uh, a group under my name. So uh, I think that's on that. I think it's called something embarrassing, like uh, uh, Spooky's legend, Frank Farrell, or something like this. I like it. I think that's, but I would encourage people to check that out. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's been very bizarre because after so many years where, I mean, street trash has always had a certain following and a yeah. bit of recognition and and it's uh it's intensified in recent years but spookies was like you know just not there for many people even if they were fans um partially because the uh the u.s video uh came out in like the the late 80s and there was never another version on on disc or on tape that came out until uh a blu-ray uh, probably a dvd and a, and a blu-ray set came out eventually uh just recently so it's it's uh I don't know. I I really I'm still getting used to it. I I didn't expect this much love to be shown. But I mean, I, I, people who tell me I love your films, I'm inspired by them. That's another great thing is to feel you can inspire somebody to do something. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm happy. Oh, yeah. And I genuinely like both movies. Uh, by the way, uh, I think you mentioned before it went live. Uh, who did that shirt? I don't. I offhand, I can't remember. His name. No worries. No, it's a it's a sweet shirt though. Now he's going oh, to hunt me down. Yeah. Well, when you find out, let us know, and I'll post it on the website. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, I feel good. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I, I, I have just you guys, just you guys getting interested enough to want me to come on to your your show, etc. Uh, and you obviously, you know, you know a thing or two about the genre and and the films. Uh, it just means an awful lot. It, it really does. I feel like I'm sort of coming home to a certain degree. Well, we, we loved having you on. Oh, yeah. Appreciate Welcome you. home. 
Thank you for allowing me on your premises. Of course. No, we'll <laughs> You're always it. welcome. Now, now you have to finish uh, part two so we can have you back and we'll talk about Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I, as I said, I've got a script. I am pretty pleased with what's coming up. Get, financing is, is always another uh, circus, but, um, you know, I've got uh, also other projects from, you know, that I have that, have, that are part of my backlog and I have projects for my partner, Tom that I'd really like to do, do something with, uh, you know, I mean, he's got a couple of things that I just think are like truly unique, interesting ideas. And I'm considering trying to, maybe there's one of them that I'm thinking about trying to turn that if I was to do something that was just really micro budget and, and very minimalistic, then maybe this would be what I would choose. Very cool. All right. Well, we love talking with you and I hope you have the rest. Yeah, of thank the, you so much. Thank you. So night. Much. Yes. Okay. Have Everybody you have a good night. All right. Yeah. And uh, everyone who sent in a secret Satan, thank you. They've been sent out. It's our annual event. It's a secret Satan gift exchange. So uh, I know mail's a little slower, but hopefully you get it before Christmas. And uh, we'll be back before then. But uh, we'll see. Well, I wish you guys all the best for the holidays into the next year. Same thank to you. you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye-bye now. All right. Good night. Uh, way awkwardly while I hit in. Oh.